Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and Happy New Year from the Living Leadership Podcast. In this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you a talk from our archives. The following talk was recorded at our pastoral refreshment conference in 2012 and is a talk given by the late Peter Maiden on Psalm 27. Well, it's great to have uh, a good amount of time to uh, minister God's word. Um, I recently was invited to speak at uh, my local Anglican cathedral. It hasn't got an evangelical uh, heritage at all. And I got a call from the dean and uh, he said, we normally have 10 minutes as our sermon time, Peter, but we know you like to preach. So we have a special meeting. I'm sure it was a meeting of you know, the College of Chaplains and so on. And he said, we are going to give you 12. <laughs> I'd just come from India, where I'd been speaking at the, at the ancient and wonderful Maraman Convention. Have you heard of the Maraman Convention? The convention of the Martoma Church in India. Very long history. They trace their roots back to, to Thomas. And once a year, they, they have this huge convention on a, on a dry riverbed in uh, southern India. The river still runs, but it, the flood of land, they, they, they build um, a covering at uh, the side, they say it's the size of four football fields, soccer fields, on this sandy riverbed. And 100,000 people every day come. And they bring a sheet of newspaper with them, and they arrive about 8 in the morning, and they sit on their sheet of newspaper, on the stand, and they listen to the preaching of God's word, hour after hour after hour. Start at 8.30, never ends before 10 o'clock at night. And then they go off and buy the rid of food and through the day. I'm just comparing that with, you know, 10 minutes in, in, in Carlisle. So thank you, Bacchus. Strong. <laughs> Let's return then to the 27th Psalm, and I'd like to read it through again. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war, war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing 
and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Yesterday evening we recognised the two quite different sections of this song. David, emotionally, is in a very different state in the second half of the psalm than he is in the first. And I explained that some interpreters see the differences as being so stark that they believe the two sections must have been written at completely different periods in David's life. And someone has, has, has joined them together. And other interpreters go even further and suggest that these two sections of the psalm could never have been penned by the same author. In the first six verses, David's confidence in God is running high. In verses 7 to 12, there's much more of a sense of struggle and of battle. But as I was arguing yesterday, in my view it's perfectly possible that these are David's words all penned on the same day, even in the same hour of the day. Such is the nature of spiritual experience. But clearly, there were many issues in David's life at this time which could have paralyzed him with fear and uncertainty. And certainly the second section of the psalm shows that the issues in David's life led to very real and very deep struggles. But as we see in verse 4, which I want to concentrate on this morning, there was a singleness of purpose in David's life, which was the very best answer to everything around him that might have distracted him. I want you to notice the, the focus, the singleness of purpose, the focus in these words. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell, not just occasionally visit, but I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. It's a sentence filled with the purpose and the priorities that ruled David's life and the struggles that he's uh, responding to in the second half of the psalm don't seem to deflect David from this focus, from this singleness of purpose. Verse 8, your face, Lord, I will seek. So unlike Elijah, whom we were looking at last night, these struggles seem to draw David closer to God rather than in any sense driving him away from God. And that leads to the last two verses of the psalm, which I really love, where you've got David patiently 
waiting for the Lord, confident that as he holds on in naked faith, he will one day see the goodness of the Lord. So this morning, how do we understand David's purpose, David's priority? He says, I want to spend every day in your house, every day in your temple. Now, of course, David could not be physically present every day in the temple. He was leading the armies out many days of his life. And in the next psalm, Psalm 28, he writes of lifting his hands towards your most holy place. So to put it in the simplest terms, David's desire is for that sense of constant communion and fellowship with God. He is asking God that in his daily life, whether he's physically in the temple, or whether he's in the eye of the storm, possibly on the battlefield, there might be that consistent experience, that consistent acknowledgement of the presence of God. That there might be the understanding that everything he's doing, everything he's saying, even everything he's thinking, everything he's planning, he is doing in the presence of God. Famously, in the 139th Psalm, David uh, writes of this reality, Oh Lord, you searched me. The Hebrew suggests the idea of digging. Oh Lord, you've taken that spade and you've dug down deep and you've turned over the details of my life. You know me. You know when I sit, you know when I'm relaxing at a pastoral refreshment conference. And you know when I rise, you know when I'm going busily about your business. You even perceive my thoughts. The Hebrew word means the ambitions, the intentions. You even perceive the ambitions, the intentions of my heart. Though you do that from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And then try and get your head around this. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and then you lay the palm of your hand upon me. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain to. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I have to say to you this morning, very honestly, one of the consistent cries of my heart is that I might experience this reality more and more in my daily life. Again, it might come back to my activist nature, but I often find I get in the middle of the project and I have to stop and ask myself, have I even spoken to God about this? Oh, yes, I asked God at the start of the day for his blessing and his guidance on the day's activities. But surely David here has got a desire for something much more than that. Something much more real than that. And I believe that if with God's help, my life could be changed at this point. My decisions would be much more wise as a leader much more God-glorifying than self-promoting. My motives 
would be more clear and, uh, and less complicated. I think I would handle criticism far better. I'd be much more calm when some things seem to be going wrong. I just believe there'd be a much more general sense of peace in my life, even in the storm. But is this a realistic desire? <clears throat> is David's desire realistic? Is this not an impossible dream to believe that we can know a constant sense of God's presence with us? After all, we're fallen human beings. But do you think a greater experience of this might be possible? Do you think the space for growth in this experience might not be possible to have an unbroken line as an illustration of our experience in this regard? That might it be possible to have a line with less and smaller breaks? I said, if with God's help, I could change in this area. That help, of course, is guaranteed. Look at verse 8. Who is taking the initiative here? My heart says of you, my translation puts it, seek his face. And that may not be a very clear translation. The Amplified Bible is much more clear. You have said to me, seek my face, inquire for and require my presence as your vital need. The Good News Bible is wonderfully simple. When you said, come and worship me, I said, I will come, Lord. God takes the initiative. He is calling me daily into this life of communion with him. You'll be familiar with some of the writings of Richard Forster. He spent the last five years, along with other theologians, producing the notes for what will be known as the Spiritual Formation Bible. There's a Bible for everything now. I hope your grandparents have got your grandmother's Bible and your granddad's Bible with all the notes. Well, we've got a Spiritual Formation Bible here. And after five years of study, in the introduction, this is what he writes. We found that the unity of the Bible is discovered in the development of life with God as a reality on earth centered in the person of Jesus. Throughout scripture, we heard God whispering down through the centuries, I am with you. I am with you. And then we heard God asking a question that searches the human person to the depths. Are you willing to be with me? And so the Lord Jesus speaks to the woman he meets at the well recorded in John 4. The Father is seeking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. You've got that magnificent vision that God gives to John on the prison island of Patmos. He, like David, is facing huge issues. And he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them 
He will be their God. And you note the word dwell there once again in heaven. It won't be an occasional, even a frequent visit to God's presence. There the line will be unbroken. So I wanted to look this morning at three reasons David gives for this focused longing in his life for the presence of God. And we'll see those three reasons in verses 4 and 5. Number one, David wants to gaze on the Lord's beauty. Secondly, he wants to seek God. He wants to inquire from God. And that's very regular. He wants to be kept safe. So let's look at those three things together. Number one, he wants to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. David just wants to meditate on the attractiveness of God's character. A meditation which will inevitably, of course, lead to worship. And this is a spiritual discipline which will bring encouragement at all times in our lives. But it's a discipline, I have to say, I found to be a huge source of encouragement daily during the stresses that I was describing to you last night. And of course the incredible truth is that as I practice this discipline of focused time in God's presence, just admiring the attractiveness of his character, that just not, doesn't just bring joy and pleasure to me. It somehow brings joy and pleasure to God himself. In those stressful months, I would regularly be in my study early morning, knowing that the day ahead would be painful, though I didn't know specifically what lay ahead. And the Psalms became my great hymn book during those months, a source of constant encouragement, the sheer honesty of the psalmist when he was going through the struggles I found to be hugely encouraging but particularly the view of God which would come again and again through the writings of the psalmist I found tremendously helpful I often couldn't understand what was going on where it was all leading the, the central issue I was struggling with was something to do with my son. And it looked as though my son's life was going to be smashed apart. It looked as though court proceedings would follow. There were all manner of terrible things going on. And I just didn't know where things were going. So I would be there early morning in the study, in the book of Psalms. And the God I met there, I found to be a God of extremely attractive faithfulness. Sometimes I felt that things happening were unjust, but the holiness and the righteousness of this God revealed to me in the Psalms was just beautiful to concentrate on. Sometimes I knew that my struggles were down to my own failures, they were down to my own foolishness. At such times the mercy of God was immensely attractive. Often the only rock on which you can rest in such storms is the, the beautiful, sheer attractiveness of God's character. 
And there's no question at all, looking back on the last two years, that one of the blessings of the trials has been an increased, more developed understanding of God's character. Because circumstances force me to dwell more in the presence of God than I'd ever dwelt before. And I came away saying, Peter, why did you wait for the trial? Why don't you practice the presence of God? Why don't you spend time dwelling on the revelation that you have of him in his word? Why don't you take time to walk in his creation and dwell on the revelation of his character and nature and power that you see there? I wonder how often we just meditate on God himself. I suggest we often praise God for his blessings in our lives. We often speak about our service for him and these things are good and essential. But do we need to know more of just dwelling, gazing on the beauty, the attractiveness of God himself? Worshipping him, his person as well as praising him for his works. I was encouraged that Psalm 103 was read yesterday evening. Praise the Lord, O my soul. David again. All my inmost being with activity involved here. All my inmost being praise his holy name. His name, of course, is his character. It's his person. Then David continues, praise the Lord, O my soul, don't forget his benefits, that's great. But praise him for his name, his character, his person. And you trace through that psalm, and David reflects on some of these beautifully attractive characteristics. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, verse 6. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, Verse 8, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Verse 17, the Lord has established his throne, his kingdom, his sovereignty rules over all. That's David dwelling on the attractiveness, the beauty of the person, the character of God. That's the first reason. David says, I want to focus my life on the temple, the presence of God, because I want to gaze on his beauty. Secondly, he says, I want to seek him, verse 4. I want to inquire after him. Derek Kidner refers to this as the essence of worship. Indeed, he says, discipleship. David's desire to gaze on God's beauty, his preoccupation with God's person, leads to his desire to seek the will of God for his life. And of course it is when you understand more and more of who God is, that the desire for his will to rule your life grows more and more. The more I see of the power, the grace, the mercy, the righteousness of my Father, the more I want his word, his beautiful, gracious will to rule my life. 
So not only might we present this as a second reason why David wants to know the presence of God, we could see it as a second step in a process. It's one thing to have a desire for more of the presence of God, but desire must lead to action. David says, I desire to see your beauty, so I'm going to seek after you. I desire to keep myself in reasonable physical shape. But I still need to go to the gym two or three times a week or go out for a run. And if I'm going to do that with any consistency, I know that I've got to take my diary. And I've got to put those things in my diary, otherwise they'll be pushed out by other things. And my prayer for myself and for us all as I've been preparing for these three days together, three days of that spiritual refreshment, my prayer has been that some of us, and I include myself, will make wise decisions uh, and maybe even take some of our, our diaries and make diary changes, which will mean that for the remainder of our ministry, there is a commitment to a more focused, seeking after the presence, the beauty, the will of our God. And yet I have to confess that for many in ministry, somehow this seems impossible. We think about it, we desire it, but we never take the appropriate steps. Mindy Caligua, I think that's how you pronounce her name, was the spiritual formation director of Willow Creek Church. And she wrote an article in which she, she posed two questions. I'd like us to meditate on these questions for a moment. Here's question number one. What normally emerges in the life of a person who neglects his or her spiritual life? What symptoms creep in when you neglect your soul? Just think about that for a moment. I'll repeat the question. Now I want you to shout out some of the things that come to your mind and I'm going to write them down on that page there. What normally emerges in the life of a person who neglects his or her spiritual life. What symptoms creep in when you neglect your soul? Start the first. Increasing irritable. Yep. Joylessness. Joylessness. After the after the Manipulation and control. Manipulate. One more. Pretending to myself and everybody else that none of those are true. Then Mindy goes on to say this. No one ever sets out to trash the condition of his soul particularly not those of us in vocational ministry. Yet we often find ourselves in a spiritual death spiral, facing ever-increasing ministry loads, which yield ever-diminishing ministry returns. But we march dutifully on, assuming that our spiritual state, our neglected soul, 
is somehow part of the deal in a life devoted to ministry. Can I just repeat that? No one ever sets out to trash the condition of his soul, particularly not those of this invocational ministry. Yet we often find ourselves in a spiritual death spiral, facing ever-increasing ministry loads, yielding ever-diminishing ministry returns. But we march dutifully on, assuming that our spiritual state, a neglected soul, is somehow part of the deal in a life devoted to ministry. Then she poses a second question. What emerges in your life when you're deeply connected with God? When your soul is healthy, to use the language of David, the language of our confidence, what emerges in your life when you're dwelling in his presence? Let's have a list. That's what we just said, the opposite of all we look at. But there's a list of things which you would be recognizing in your life if you make the wise decision. Diary chin. Good headwood. Or petman. Hope. Strength quite intelligent. Okay. I'll accept a vote now. Who votes? For this life. Who votes? For that life. And yet, most of us, every day of our lives, are taking a vote. We're taking a vote. And the reality is, some of us know by our life decisions, and I'm speaking out of personal grief here over the years, some of us know that by our life decisions, we actually vote to neglect our souls. By our life decisions, brother and sister, we actually vote. So that life, rather than for this life. Are we going to move from the desire within us for the presence of God to make decisions which will actually lead us to seeking him, seeking after him? There is in this word translated seek the idea of inquiring. David wants to know God's will. He wants to respond well in this crisis. One of the Qualities you mentioned are with strength when you're tempted. I think David is wanting to seek the will of God so that he responds well under the test, under the temptations which will be associated with that test that he finds himself in. You can see in verse 8, he wants to be taught the Lord's ways. He wants to be led on a straight path. And he says this is particularly because of his obsessiveness. Particularly important in periods of stress and crisis. Takes me back to what I was saying last night about Elijah's failure to wait in the crisis. His panic response in the face of Jezebel. If I go back to those early morning times in my study, not only did they enable me to get a fresh sense of God's person and of his adequacy, 
for every situation. But those times also helped me to get my head right and my heart right. Particularly in times of ministry crisis, I would find myself in danger of responding to preserve my own credibility, to defend my position, or, to be honest, just to get my own back to people who were criticizing me. It was so utterly vital to get that time seeking, inquiring after God, to get my head straight, my heart, my motives sorted out. And then to plan for actions on the basis of God's glory, not personal credibility or reputation. I can remember time and time again in those mornings saying to God, please Lord, in this crisis, help me to work for your glory. Everything within me, my flesh, wants to work for my personal credibility, my personal reputation. But I want to walk from this room, this study, with my head right my heart rate. I want to be responding in this crisis for your glory. If we go back to the opening verses of Psalm 26, you can see this struggle. David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've led a blameless life. I've trusted in the Lord and haven't faltered. Then look at the end of verse 3. I've lived in reliance on your faithfulness. And the commentators suggest that these references after a decision which David made. kind of decision I'm talking about. The decision to trust in the Lord, to rely on God's faithfulness. That's his decision, rather than relying on his own strategies, his own decisions to defend himself. David says, I want to see your beauty, Lord. And that will respond, lead to the response of worship. And I want to seek your will, Lord. That will lead to the response of discipleship. And then thirdly, he wants to be kept safe. Verse 5. In the day of trouble he will keep me safe. In his dwelling he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. And then he continues, my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his tabernacle. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make music to the Lord. The commentators have got various ways of interpreting the word in verse 6, translated tabernacle. Derek Kidner believes the word depicts the lair of the lion. Calvin prefers the image of the king's pavilion, a place of safety in the centre of the battle, surrounded by armed defenders. The war is raging, but he is safe. A Middle Eastern interpreter, interestingly, suggests the Bedouin tent, where once the visitor has entered, he will be cared for and guarded as much as the owner of the tent will be kept and guarded. They're all images of safety, where even in the most difficult circumstances, there can be hope of absolute security. David is basically saying the safest place at this time of crisis is in your presence. The safest place is to know your will. That's the safest place I can ever be in. I hope these are not just Christian cliches. The presence of God is always the safest place 
Because there our souls can be sustained, however great the pressure might become. It's the place of safety because there we can know his will, how to respond to the difficulties. And we said that we're prone to all manner of spiritual dangers when we're in the storm, when the battle is raging. But notice that this safe place is not the kind of place where David cowers in fear. He writes in verse 5 of being set high upon a rock, and in verse 6 of singing and making music to the Lord. In the 23rd Psalm, you've got a beautiful picture of God preparing a table for David in the presence of his enemies. God anoints his head with oil. He says, my cup is overflowing. So David is saying, God sustains me with abundance in the middle of the trial. The presence of God. Enjoying the sheer beauty, the sheer attractiveness of his character, sustaining us, seeking his will to direct us, the place of safety and security in all circumstances. I'm sure Psalm 73 comes to your mind. Asaph is struggling. God is good to Israel. That's my theology. God is good to Israel. Certainly to those in Israel who are pure in heart. So what's this? The wicked are prospering. They're mocking the pure in heart and they're seemingly carrying everything before them. It's crisis time for Asaph. My feet had almost slipped. He writes, I nearly lost my football. What's the point, he asks, of keeping my heart pure? He writes, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood the final destiny of these people. For Asaph, there in the presence of God, he finally got his head together. He finally got his heart right as he saw the eternal perspective. And he came out of the sanctuary a very different person. So as we close this morning, I want to read you a testimony. The testimony of a Christian leader who is determined in the middle of a hugely demanding workload, often facing disappointment in ministry, severely criticized almost constantly. And yet this Christian leader was determined to make the presence of God, the knowledge of God, his relationship with God, his soul health, he was determined to make that his priority. So maybe you'd just like to close your eyes, if that's appropriate, and listen to this testimony. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, 
to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Just take a moment, reflecting on that testimony, thinking of these two lists, and asking yourself the question, in response to the emphasis of this conference, do I need to take my diary and make some diary changes so that this focus which we're seeing in Psalm 27 might become the focus of my life? Lord, we've talked this morning of this conference being a safe place. As, as brothers and sisters together, we, we come with this desire to know you and to be in your presence. And Lord, we do pray that this truly safe place of your presence, gazing upon your beauty, inquiring of your will, this truly safe place might become a true focus in our lives. Lord, I pray that constantly for myself. Thank you for the example of David. Thank you for the example of Paul that we've just read. A man being so greatly used of you in the midst of the battle and yet this, this driving desire to be in your presence, to know you. Lord, please make that the driving desire of my heart and of my ministry. Please help me to deal with the garbage, the rubbish that can press in on me. That this might have space, Lord, to be in the right place in my life. And what I pray for myself, Lord, I pray on my brothers and sisters bowed now before you. May, for some of us, Lord, this be a turning point, this conference, where we make those wise decisions which will make such a difference to life and ministry in the years to come. Thank you, Lord, that you are calling us. You are taking the initiative. We're seeking after you, Lord, but your face is always towards us. You never turn away from us. We worship you for your mercy. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources 
to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.